Well, let's turn together to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, we're going to finish our series in the Beatitudes. And we have focused on joy in the Lord. I've given it all I've got with this series. I hope you've given it all you've got to apply it to your lives. While you're finding Matthew 5, just for fun, I've written an advertisement for becoming a Christian. Would you like to become a part of the most hated and unpopular group on earth? This group has been consistently mocked, ridiculed, harassed, oppressed, and murdered for a couple thousand years now. Would you like to enjoy the insults and aggression of family members, co-workers, neighbors, governing authorities, the media, and even others who claim to be part of this group but aren't? And would you like to give up everything you hold dear, maybe even including your spouse, children, job, or even your life to join this group? Then you too should repent of your sins against God and become a Christian, a follower of Christ. Now you might think that's a little bit silly, but let me read you the advertisement Jesus gave for becoming a Christian. Luke 14, beginning in verse 26, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Lest when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. What's his point? So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. That's the advertisement of the Lord Jesus for becoming a Christian. One church that happens to meet on the same street as ours describes being part of the Church of Jesus Christ as, quote, giving you a place where you experience a fresh, enjoyable connection to God. And while that sounds wonderful, as with every other seeker-sensitive church, the attendee is a customer, and customer service is the focus. And that sounds wonderful, but that is not proper ecclesiology. That is the opposite. Is that the church's goal? To make you happy, to give you a, a, an experience of some sort? How about this advertisement for a local church? Here at Tribulation Church, you can expect to be part of a suffering and dying group of Christ followers. You will be poor and destitute at times because of following Christ, but you'll get to be part of a dynamic prison ministry where we actually go to prison and actually to minister the gospel. Our church members just love to die for Jesus and we would love to share that joy with you and your family as well. We meet in two locations, our convenient local meeting in the city and our less convenient remote location where all of us who have already died for the faith now meet in heaven. This is, of course, the highly commended church of Smyrna in Revelation 2. 
This morning I'd like to consider joy for the oppressed, joy for the persecuted. And this joy will become apparent at the end of our time together. Let's see what the Lord Jesus has to say about this. Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are many sources of persecution. An unbelieving spouse may be a source of persecution. For that matter, a believing spouse who's rebelliously disobedient to the Lord and causing strife in the home, he or she may be a source of persecution. Your adult children may be a source of persecution if they've rejected the gospel and therefore they're rejecting you. Unbelieving family members can be a source of persecution. They can't fathom that Christ is more important than family. People in your workplace or maybe even the the very company that you work for may be a source of persecution. Maybe even church members who don't want to be righteous either because they're immature or they're actually unbelievers. They may be a source. You may even confront sin with a a professing brother or sister and that person doesn't want to hear it and instead resorts to vengeful behavior instead of humble confession and repentance. Some may even try to ruin your reputation and mischaracterize and misrepresent you in an act of bitter vengeance all because you desired their holiness along with your own. So there's no lack of sources for persecution. Basically, they're all around us. You remember what Peter calls us as Christians in 1 Peter 2.11, sojourners and exiles. I like some older translations that call us strangers and aliens. We don't belong here. And I believe that if we are consistent in our theology, that at the rapture of the church, that the taking away of all the living Christians from the earth by God, that will be a day of rejoicing on the earth. That will be a day of joy. I think about the two witnesses of Revelation 11 during the Great Tribulation. They'll be proclaiming the gospel, this gospel of Christ, and they'll be in Jerusalem for three and a half years. And when God allows them to be killed for their witness, Revelation 11.10 records, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth that, yay, the Christians are dead. Let's celebrate and exchange gifts. So what do we make of persecution? It's been a hot topic over the last few years, as I'll go into in a moment. But to help us understand this, I want to just give you three topics to kind of divide our thoughts. Three topics to better understand persecution. We'll spend the majority of our time on the second one. But I'll give them to you up front. I want to talk to you about the principal elements of persecution, the primary source of persecution, and the personal response to persecution, the, pri- the principal elements, the primary source, and the personal response. So first, let's consider the principal elements of persecution. And I'm going to subdivide this down further into three of them. Three principal elements, parts to persecution. The first one we'll call certainty. There is certainty to persecution. You notice in verse 11 that Jesus doesn't say, Blessed are you if people insult you and persecute you. He doesn't say, 
just in case persecution happens, you just need to know that you'll be blessed. It's just kind of a, a caveat there, just in case. Actually, to be more blunt about it, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is definite. Or to reverse the logical progression from a negative standpoint, if you're not persecuted, then you're not demonstrating a desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. So why is it so important to note the certainty of persecution? Well, it's very simple. It's so you're not surprised. So you're not surprised by it. This is what Peter explained in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. And so there's the principal element of certainty. There's another principal element we'll call variety. Variety. There are three varieties of persecution which Jesus outlines. And he gives it here right here in our text. The first one, insults, insults. Other English translations say uh, reviling you, insulting you, reviling you. This is to disparage, to mock, to verbally shame you. Insults. There's a second variety of persecution, harassment, harassment. He says, blessed are those who have been, I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you this is a word that means to harass it literally means to run after you in fact jesus used this exact term in a literal sense to describe persecutors following after jesus disciples he said in matthew 23 34 that jesus disciples were going to be persecuted from city to city followed from city to city and you you recall from the book of acts this literally happened to the apostle paul every time he left one city that was throwing them out the persecutors the jews who were unbelievers followed him this happened quite literally jobs are already routinely being lost as a result of following christ some in our own congregation have experienced that right here in the state of california there's insults there's harassment and there's a third variety, slander. Slander. Falsely saying all kinds of evil against you because of me. Slandering you, portraying that which is good as that which is evil and vice versa. If you read liberal news outlets, you would think Christians are A, the dumbest, and B, the worst people on planet Earth. We're slandered every day. Insults, harassment, slander there's certainty there's variety here's a third principle element predictability predictability jesus lists two reasons both very predictable and very comprehensive two reasons for persecution these are these are the motivations this is what makes it predictable the first reason he says in verse 10 blessed are you have been those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness the first reason is for righteousness what does that mean? That's speaking of the godly character exhibited by followers of Christ, which inspires and motivates scorn by the lost. Mocking, resentment, mistreatment, a return to those who display a stand for what's right and what's good. Talking about such horrible things as speaking out concerning gender, sexual immorality, believing that parents are the primary influences on children, that criminals must be punished and not coddled and felt sorry for. 
that God has ordained an order for marriage and an order for the church in which men lead, that married women are to pursue loving their husbands, raising their children, being busy at home above all else, that the Bible is the only divine standard of righteousness. There is no other standard. Why are you mocked for following Christ in righteousness? Peter tells us the reason. He tells us we're mocked because unbelievers are surprised when you refuse to follow them. And so they mock you. First Peter 4, beginning in verse 3, he says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have worked out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In other words, you're done with all that. You're a Christian now. You, you've moved on from that. You're living the life that's pleasing to the Lord. But he goes on to say, In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And what do they do? Now they are, Peter says, maligning you. You think that the peer pressure of second grade gets outgrown? No, it just gets more vicious. Here's an example. The wickedness of the supreme religion, false religion in America, is shown the supreme false religion of America is secular psychology. The wickedness of secular psychology is found in the fact that psychology is based in one overriding belief system. And that is priority of me. Priority of self. Everything in secular psychology is based on me. You can't get away from that. You can't soften it. You can't try to merge and mingle that with Christianity. You can't try and mix it together like oil and water the concept of the so-called Christian counselor who uses secular psychological systems while quoting a couple of Bible verses and saying you should pray about this, that's a modern form of syncretism. The mixing of that which is true with that which is false, and that's, that's worse than anything. It's absolutely antithetical to what it means to follow Christ. It's very predictable that persecution happens for righteousness. There's another predictable motive or reason. The second reason is because of Christ. Because of Christ. The end of verse 11. They say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because you've confessed the name of Christ. Because you've identified with Christ. Because you're a, you're a member of a church. Talk about that in a little bit here. That when you proclaim that Jesus is the only way to be right with God and that all other belief systems are false, satanic, worldly, wicked, worthless, hellish, destructive, deceptive, evil, disgusting, worthy of punishment, mercilessly judged by God, everything else you can think of, and that Jesus is the exclusive Savior, the exclusive Son of God, and that all who do not follow Christ all share the doom of being cast into the lake of fire and that all who do follow Christ share the reward of eternity with Christ, first in heaven and then on new earth. This inspires the wicked rage of the lost. And certainly when you stand for that which is written in the word of Christ, the word of God. And what's the old argument? They'll say, well, you have to prove the Bible to me. And even if somebody says, well, the Bible is self-proving, well, that's circular reasoning. Let me tell you what the Puritan pastor John Owen said 
he staunchly declared that the divine authority of the Bible is self-attesting. It's divine because it's the Bible, and it's the Bible because it's divine. He says this, God, who is prima veritas, the first and sovereign truth, that God should write a book, or at least immediately compose it, commanding us to receive it as His under the penalty of His eternal displeasure, and yet that book not make a sufficient discovery of itself to be His, to be from Him, is past all belief. Now, let me translate some of the Puritanese there. He's saying, if God can only write a book which outside lesser evidence is needed to prove, then God didn't write that book. God didn't write that book. The principal elements of persecution. Certainty, variety, predictability. Now earlier I listed some potential sources of persecution. Family, co-workers, even immature or false believers in the church. But there's one source historically that none of the others even come close to. One particular source of persecution that has outdone all the others combined. And that's our second topic to better understand persecution the primary source of persecution. Historically, in terms of broad, sweeping persecution and oppression, there isn't even a close second. In terms of the denigration of the name of Christ, the oppression and murder of Christians, the relegation to second-class status in society, that primary source of persecution throughout history is the government. Always has been. And we need to dig into this for a while because... While some of you might not face persecution from your family, maybe not from your co-workers or immature or false believers in the church, you have faced, do face, and will face persecution from the government. It will happen. We remember all too well and with biting freshness the word you're hoping I won't say, COVID. We remember the COVID-19 era which forced itself upon the church in March of 2020. The outbreak of COVID-19 to many government officials, while acting like they had a concern for public welfare, for many government officials, this was a delightful and exhilarating experience because they finally had an opportunity to test out their, their socialist government-as-God ideology. Finally, in their minds, federal, state, and local governments had the ultimate excuse to control literally whether you can leave your house or not and certainly to control whether you get to go to the church or not. And almost every church, including ours, gave the government the benefit of the doubt. What were we told? We were told in California, five million people were going to drop dead. That this was on the level of the Spanish flu outbreak that the government needed 15 days to flatten the curve. Remember that nonsense? The government deemed that gatherings such as worship services were too dangerous to allow because of the virus. Now, of course, riots, casinos, and Hollywood gatherings were fine. They were safer somehow. It saw the institution of such logic as this. At a restaurant, you'll probably catch the virus if you walk without a mask between point A and point B. But once you sit down, you can't catch the virus, so it's okay to take your mask off. What idiot came up with that? It saw dictatorial mandates for all people to cover their faces, the visible representation of being made in the image of God. 
I've got an entire sermon ready on what it means to cover your face as a sin against God if you're ashamed of His image. I never got to preach it. It's waiting for a day when I can't think of anything else, I suppose. But we all remember the stakes. We all remember the issues. They're very fresh to us. It was like living through a war, wasn't it? And since we as a church wanted to be good citizens, we went along with nearly every other church to close services, which we did for a period of a, a couple of months. Then we moved to outdoor services. We paid rent for a building we weren't using. We did everything in our power to try to find the balance. And at that time, the issue of Christian freedom became an absolute white hot button because every church had people who wanted everyone masked and people who wanted no one masked. Issues such as social distancing, hand sanitizing, and even singing were hot topics that in our church, like most, necessitated countless hours of what I would characterize as nightmarish discussions. For churches and the pastors of churches, battle lines were being drawn, and as the pandemic began to be exposed for the excuse for government control that it really was, choices had to be made. For the first time in modern history, Western evangelical pastors were sent to prison and fined for allowing their congregations to meet. Police raided churches. Churches were given huge, hefty fines. Even today, today, in California, a large church is facing a government backlash and being sued for over a million dollars because they refused to go by the COVID-19 guidelines. Now, my point is not to rehash all that. Our church, like countless others, underwent a cleansing and purifying process of establishing the simple answer to the question, who will we obey, God or Caesar? We've chosen God. We recorded this journey in our book, The Essential Church. The point of the book is to give an honest and transparent view of the struggles that we've had, mistakes we made, and arrival at our determination that never again will Caesar dictate to this particular local church. Never. The Essential Church was written as a declaration of our intention to not be fooled by government overreach again. Really, we wrote it for one reason. If anybody else comes and says, don't you think we should obey the government? We'll just hand them the book and say, you see what you think. This is a difficult topic. It's very difficult. Because Bible-believing Christians sincerely desire to submit to the government. Because Christians, by definition, desire to submit to authority. That's part of being a Christian. We're told to pray for our governing officials. In 1 Timothy 2, we're we're to be faithful to do that. Romans 13 is clear that human government is is God-given. It is God-ordained. Now, what I was raised with in what seems to be an innocuous and innocent position is the classic position on submission to the government that says this, as Christians, we submit to the government in all things as long as there isn't a direct mandate to sin. And that's kind of been our default, and it's one that I've, I've held to in times past. But what that actually does is that gives government total freedom to do anything that they think is so-called in our best interest. During our COVID time, we went un- underwent a progression of understanding and growth. And right near the beginning, I, along with thousands and thousands of pastors, preached Romans 13, the classic obey the government passage. And that was under the benefit of the doubt assumption that the government was, like the Spanish flu of the early 20th century, going to respectfully work alongside churches for a greater common good. The, the, the comparison doesn't hold because during the Spanish flu time, which lasted a matter of weeks and months, not years, 
The government, local governments and state governments came with hat in hand to churches saying, could you please help us? Could we use your church as a hospital? Could we shut you down just for a short period of time until we get this thing under control? Churches were closed for a matter of weeks, not months and years. And so if anybody would just read a little history, they would find that the comparison doesn't hold. But as it became increasingly clear that the government was in reality now placing itself in the place of God, we had to bolster our theology and become more precise. Because government is the primary source of persecution, we need to be precise about our theology of the government. Understanding that never can the human government take the place of God at any level. So to help us get a little bit more precise, let's turn to the other side of our Bible to Genesis chapter 8. In Genesis 8, God has just judged the world with a worldwide flood. And now God will establish human government as a limited institution to guard what we might call the building blocks of society. And what we're going to see in Genesis 8 and into Genesis 9 is that there are five building blocks of society, building blocks of a society as God designed it, and the government has a role to play with those building blocks, primarily to protect them. The first building block of a society as God designed it, independent Yahweh worship. Independent worship of Yahweh. Now, to be clear here, never in Scripture is there a mandate to give freedom of worship in general. That's a completely unbiblical principle. Why would God say, you should worship any God you want? God would never say that. Why would God promote freedom to be idolaters? We are free to worship God. Genesis 8.20 What's the first thing Noah did when he got off the ark? Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The first act of Noah when he got off the ark was independent Yahweh worship. Now why do I say independent? Because Noah was under an oppressive system before. Can you imagine living on an earth and you decide, I'm going to go to church with all the true Yahweh worshipers and it's your wife, three sons and daughters-in-law. On the whole earth. Noah went through persecution. He went through ridicule as literally the only God-worshipping family left on the planet. Now government obviously cannot and should not make the worship of Yahweh mandatory. Worship is an internal act brought about by the grace of God. It can't be mandated. But listen carefully. Phrases like, and these are dangerous phrases, phrases like, The government allows us to worship. Those are dangerous. It's wrong. The only role of the government that it has in its intersection with worshiping Yahweh is to protect it, not to interfere, not to make mandates concerning worship. There's a second building block of society we'll call submissive, fearless development. Submissive, fearless development. Verse 21, and Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma and Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth and I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. And for all the environmentalists in the crowd, verse 22, while all the days of the earth remain, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. 
What does a wicked government use to control you? It uses the threat of the earth coming to an end, of climate change and environmental problems and all that. The fear of so-called climate change, what does that provoke? It provokes not using resources. It provokes not using animals, protecting animals over humanity. Part of dominion is development, progress. Genesis 1, there's listed that gold and bdellium and other, other stones are in the land. Why, why is that list there? Because they're meant to be used. And instead, government forces society to bow down to the earth. I think this is Earth Month or something, isn't it? Earth Day? While all the days of the earth remain. That's good enough for me. Instead, the government forces society to bow down to the earth, over-regulating everything and placing a squeeze and a hold on our ability to have dominion over the earth. The only regulations that fall within the government's God-given authority are those that promote freedom, development, and protecting your God-given right to dominate the earth. There's a third building block of society, divine family design. Divine family design. Verse 1 of chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This continues the Genesis 1, 26-28 mandate that man and woman marry and have children and this forms a family and the family constitutes the bricks and mortar of a well-functioning society. Family design is divine. And now, in more ways than we can count, it's literally illegal to say that out loud. It's illegal to say that all transgender people are going to hell unless they come to faith in Jesus Christ and repent. It's wrong, supposedly, to say that the Bible says that homosexuals have no part in the kingdom of heaven. But we're the pillars and the the foundations of the truth. We're called to say it out loud. We're called to live it out loud. Divine family design. What is the government's role? To protect that. To protect that marriage is between a man and a woman and they have a right to raise their children in peace. There's a fourth building block of society. Plentiful food provision. Plentiful food provision. Verse 2 of chapter 9. And the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. As with the green plant, I give all to you. Historically, hunger in the world is almost never caused by weather or cataclysm. It's caused by conflict, and it's caused by wicked governments. Wicked governments that are either oppressing their own people or they're refusing to deal with violent people who are doing the oppression themselves. If you did just a basic study of history, even events happening today, that would reveal this to be the case. There is plenty of food in the world and there's plenty of water in the world and there's plenty of ways to distribute that. But it's wicked governments that prevent that. The government instead is supposed to protect the food supply Just last year, the organization Concern USA, they did a rating of all the countries in the world with the worst hunger and mass starvation problem. Their number one ranking, that might be surprising to you, is the country of Yemen. Yemen is a country absolutely rich in oil. 
And yet, who controls all the oil? It's literally all owned by the government. Yemen has been highly dependent on two countries to import food. Russia, take a wild guess, Ukraine. Obviously, they're engaged in their own conflict, and Yemen has been in its own civil war for nine years. After the flood, the fear of mankind was caused to come upon animals here in verse 2. Now there's a distance between mankind and animals which didn't exist prior to the fall of man and even just prior to the flood as well. Since prior to the flood, humanity was given only what grows on the earth for food. But now, especially in a world destroyed by the flood, it becomes necessary for mankind to be able to eat animals. Why is that so glorious other than the fact that they taste good? That's a different issue. God is allowing you to have a food source that literally travels with you and grows all by itself. And the government is to protect that, not hold you back from it. There's one more building block, a righteous societal justice. Righteous societal justice. Verse 5, Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every living thing I will require it. And from every man, from each man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For the image of God, for in the image of God, he made man. This is the institution of government. And the number one role of the government was to kill bad people. That's the role of the government, to execute them. Prior to the flood, there was no organized societal response to murder. The most wicked of men could kill as he pleased. And we think of Lamech in Genesis 4:23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give ear to my word, for I have killed a man for striking me and a boy for wounding me. This is a threat to his own wives that he will kill with impunity and basically saying there's nobody to do anything about it. And that was true in that time. But now God institutes the death penalty to kill the worst of society who spill the blood of others. Now, the point of all these building blocks that I just gave you, to make life in a post-flood society and world livable and enjoyable, government was established with the mandate to guard these building blocks of society. Or to boil it down, to use some of the language of Romans 13, God has given government to promote that which is good and punish that which is evil. And even bad men and even wicked governments can accomplish this, at least in a limited and incomplete way. Even ungodly governments can be used for the good of its people. Why do we say this? Well, there's no theocracy on earth. There's no government which employs only Christians and only goes by biblical law. That doesn't exist. But by and large, generally speaking, bad people are still punished. And by and large, a reasonable citizen can usually live a peaceful life under even the difficult governing authority. Because a a world without government is exactly what led to the flood. Total anarchy. And we as Christians, we're called to live quiet lives under the radar, so to speak. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. We're not called to live lives filled with protests and anger and trying to overthrow whatever system we're under. 
The government will be overthrown when Christ returns. And conveniently, all of them will be overthrown at the same time. And so putting all this together, that provokes a question that we all have to answer. What are the limits to submission to government? What are the limits? Let me give you the most obvious to the most subtle. The most obvious is mandates to directly sin against God. Any mandate to directly sin against God, and that's the usual Christian default, that that's the only, uh, the only variable. But when there's a mandate to directly sin against God, then civil disobedience is the only reasonable act for the follower of Christ. In fact, it is a test of your faith whether you will disobey or not. Another one that's pretty obvious, mandates to fail to obey God. This is sort of the other side of the coin. Mandates to fail to obey God. The most obvious example in recent times was the government's insistence that the church not meet during COVID. That's certain to happen again at some point because they did it successfully once and the government is not known for learning from mistakes. But then you get a little more subtle. Mandates to control the church. Mandates to control the church. What's the balance that we're walking? The balance we're walking is that all of you who know Christ, you're all dual citizens. You have a dual citizenship. You're a citizen of our nation and state, and you're a citizen of God's kingdom. And each has its own domain. Each has its own purview, its own responsibility. Each has its responsible area. The church is not responsible nor does it have the authority to govern, to mete out punishment, to bear arms against enemies, foreign and domestic. That's not our role. We don't have a church-wide military. And on the other side, the government has no authority in the church whatsoever. The government cannot regulate any part of our worship, which is derived straight from Scripture. Uh, Could I put it this way? If the government was really doing what it's called to do by God, they would be the ones posting armed guards all around our property, not to keep us out, but to keep anybody who hates us from coming in. That's what the government is to do. Now, we don't flaunt this. We don't try to draw attention to ourselves. We're not asking you to to get a bunch of signs and go outside and protest. But any mandate that tries to control the church is out of bounds. The government doesn't get to do that. And then to be even more subtle, mandates which overstep God's purposes for government. Mandates which overstep God's purposes for government. You remember those five building blocks? Those are the purposes. Our goal is to maintain a harmonious overlap between these two areas of citizenship. We do all we can. We stretch, we bend, we accommodate for the sake of peace. Does the government have a right to come in and insist that we have these exit signs here? Technically, no. But we accommodate. It's a good idea. It's not a bad thing. And it's a, that would be a dumb reason for us to draw a lot of attention to ourselves, right? But there's ways we accommodate. I'll give you a couple of examples. Marriage licenses. Since when did the government decide who gets to get married? God gave marriage to all of humanity. Marriage licenses are convenient. You can't change your social security card. You can't change your insurance without them. So we just go along with it. Property taxes. Property taxes are a way the government threatens to steal your property from you if you don't give them money. 
and there's no biblical precedent for it at all. This tends toward making government God when in fact God owns the earth. And it doesn't accomplish any of the five building blocks of society. But we pay our property taxes. Why? Because it makes it possible to live in peace and to continue proclaiming the gospel to a dying world. We're living in light of a day when all justice will be done when the true king arrives. So what's our goal? Our goal is to be cooperative. Our goal is to be obedient in every possible way we can. A law might be outside of God's purposes, but it's not necessarily going to cause you harm or violate your conscience if you keep it. So you have to make that decision. I'll give you a couple of examples. There are construction laws in California that are beyond reason. Don't yell amen if you're in the construction business because I understand this. I'll give you just one example. There's a little tiny round blue thing called a water flow restrictor or constrictor. And it goes in shower heads. And it's there to ensure that it takes you four days to rinse the shampoo out of your hair. It's to save water so that you use five times more water because of the water flow constrictor than if you didn't have it. Does that law accomplish any of the five building blocks of society? It doesn't. It doesn't curtail evil. It doesn't promote the common good. You can take those little things out. Five minutes and a pair of needle-nose pliers works wonders. It doesn't accomplish anything. Why? Because there's just as much water on our planet as there was when Noah stepped out of the ark. With one exception, whatever we've sent to space and is still there. What was the government supposed to do? They're supposed to protect the population by ensuring that we have water in the first place. I don't know the most recent number, but as of a few years ago in California, 70% of our rainfall washes out to sea. You want to know why? Because we don't have enough reservoirs, we don't have enough places to store water because we're protecting some gecko or some lizard or some owl or something. So instead, all the water flows out to the sea because the government thinks a little three-inch lizard that you have to step on with your boot is more important than people. And then the government consistently imposes limits and fines on citizens and makes it our job to conserve water. But instead, as per usual, the government causes the crisis, then passes laws to control the citizens because of the crisis, and then penalizes citizens for not keeping those laws. There's a term for that. It's called totalitarianism. And it is outside the purview of God-given government. It's outside the authority of government. Now, look, if your conscience will bother you, if you take that little constrictor out of your shower head and you have time to spend all day rinsing the shampoo out of your hair, then don't take it out. But remember that as long as the government doesn't ask you to sin is not a full-orbed understanding of evaluating the role of the government. Pastor Jesse Johnson uses the illustration of a law in Gainesville, Florida, or Gainesville, Georgia, rather, a real law that you must eat fried chicken with your fingers, no utensils allowed. And he writes this, Quote, now, if you find yourself in Gainesville and you eat fried chicken with a fork and knife, you're not disobeying God. God allows you to eat fried chicken with utensils, even if you're in a locale that bans it. That's not why God made government. However, you should seriously consider using your fingers so you don't get into trouble with the law or so your conscience doesn't convict you. So overall, our, our goal is to live harmoniously. Our goal is to live peacefully 
keeping our eyes on the future time when Christ will make all things right. And so we can comply even when we know many mandates are out of bounds. But when it comes to the government ever making an attempt to control your faith at any level, the spread of the gospel, the gathering of God's people, we resist and we respectfully refuse to submit. We must make the choice that Peter made. We read earlier in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. That's the primary source of persecution. Let me give you one more topic, the personal response to persecution. The personal response to persecution. I've preached sermons on persecution for the past 25 years here and there. Most of the time it's been theoretical when persecution comes. It's no, not theory anymore. It is my duty to be as direct and candid as possible to prepare you. This isn't the subject for nuance. This isn't the subject for subtlety for you to try to figure out what I'm talking about. So to, to discharge my responsibility, I want to be as, as very blunt as I can. Let me highlight four ways to respond to persecution. Four ways to respond to persecution. The first one, honestly evaluate. Honestly evaluate. I'm not talking about evaluating the government. I'm talking about evaluating yourself. Evaluate your salvation in Christ. Count the cost. That's the passage we read in Luke that Jesus said that that somebody who's going to build a tower, he counts the cost to see if it's worth it or not. You genuinely decide who you love most, God or Caesar. That's your choice. That used to be a theoretical choice, but COVID exposed countless false believers, exposed countless cowardly churches. Men self-protecting, not because they feared COVID, but because they feared angering the powers that be or feared losing a cushy job. Government officials from the federal level all the way down to the state level to the local level covering themselves and jumping on whatever was trendy at the moment. The fact is, is that if you're more concerned about pleasing anyone or anything other than Christ, that means you're thinking about, you're considering not enduring persecution. You're considering not doing what it takes. If that's you, then you ought to seriously consider what Jesus calls those who actually do suffer their faith all the way to suffer for their faith all the way to the end of life, no matter the cost. In Revelation 2 and 3, he calls them overcomers. They're overcomers. So you ought to first honestly evaluate. And yes, you may make a, a course correction. In the 15th century, Thomas Cranmer was commanded to do certain things that he felt were going to denigrate the gospel of Christ and compromise the authority of Scripture, and he went along with it. He signed an agreement that I agree with these things that I don't even believe in. And then he recanted and said, No, I will be faithful to the Lord. And when he was burned at the stake, he famously put the hand that signed the agreement into the fire first. And so, yes, you may make a course correction, but you honestly evaluate. Here's a second response to persecution. Respectfully disobey. Respectfully disobey. When you encounter mandates to directly sin against God, mandates to fail to obey God, mandates to control the church, mandates which overstep God's purposes for government, then respectfully disobey. There's no need to call attention to yourself. If you can, do so without causing a stench. 
James Coates in Alberta, arrested and imprisoned, did have his church continue meeting. He did pay the price, but neither was he on yelling rampages and public protests and making angry demands. There's a third response to persecution. Willingly suffer. Willingly suffer. Could I say this about the COVID time? It didn't fit any of the paradigms of our stereotypical cartoon pictures of persecution. That's what caught everybody off guard. It didn't fit our preconceived notion. It was gray. It was confusing. It was shocking. The government was saying, look, all we're trying to do is protect the health of people. So don't wait until the next sneak attack by Satan to decide your loyalties. Know the limits of the government. Obey if you can. Willingly suffer if you cannot. But there's a fourth response to persecution. This is really the whole point of today. The fourth response is rejoice confidently. Rejoice confidently. The apostles were beaten for their faith in the early chapters of of Acts and they left rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. How is it that you have joy in persecution? Let me give you some some joys in persecution and, and I'll just do this briefly. First of all, there's joy in the confirmation of your salvation. There's joy in the confirmation of your salvation that you are an overcomer. You are an overcomer. 2,000 years of church history has seen martyrs on the verge of death literally laughing and rejoicing and weeping tears of joy because they knew at that moment they're about to die for their faith and they are overcomers. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, here it is, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is no greater joy on this earth than knowing that you are saved and that you are going to heaven. There is no greater joy. Kind of similar to that. There's joy in the certainty of your future. There's joy in the certainty of your future in Matthew 5.12, the last verse there, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. What, what is the joy that Jesus promises? He says in verse 12, Rejoice and be glad. What's the reason? For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That first you'll be rewarded in heaven, then you'll be rewarded when the kingdom of Christ comes to earth. There's joy of certainty. Then there's joy in a purified church. There's joy in a purified church. I've had the blessing and the privilege of speaking to, I don't know, maybe a hundred different pastors post the COVID crisis. Every single one of them have said that their churches are gloriously purified through this. That many of those who truly didn't want to follow Christ just never came back. And I know that sounds harsh, But listen, we are not about customer service. We are about purifying the bride of Christ. Amen? The church at Smyrna, the suffering church, they received no rebuke from Jesus Christ because they needed none. They were true believers standing for the gospel. By the way, little known fact, in Smyrna, you were allowed to move. 
Jesus told them, some of you will be imprisoned and some even die. And there's no record of any of them ever moving. Do you know that some of them were even borrowed for persecution from other cities? When Russia began allowing more open worship several decades ago, loosening up a little bit on the restrictions in the churches, you might think that the church, the true church, would have rejoiced at that. They didn't. The underground church in Russia was extremely concerned about this, extremely prayerful about it, because now false believers could make their way into the church again. They believed rightly that the purity of the church would be compromised and they had embraced persecution as the white-hot purifying effect on the church. So there is such great rejoicing in persecution, but you have to prepare for it. But I have to close with a final warning. I don't like to do that, but kind of a final splash of sober reality We probably should look together at Matthew 5 again. If you have one more moment, turn with me back to Matthew 5 because I need to show you something that's here. Look back at the first beatitude. Matthew 5, verse 3. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The beatitudes begin with that which is purely internal, being poor in spirit. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn, purely internal, a heart attitude, mourning your own sin, being poor in spirit, that you have nothing to offer the Lord. Verse 5, Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Those who are lowly, purely a heart attitude, that you're, you're poor in spirit, you're mourning your own sin, you're, you're humble and, and humiliated before the Lord. All internal, all inside. But now they begin to become a little bit more manifest, a little bit more seen. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When we did that verse, we saw that this is a genuine desire to exhibit righteous behavior. The internal now crosses over to that which is observable, the external. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Mercy, this internal heart attitude manifested externally in all your relationships. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And when we did this, we, we said that this is an internal heart attitude manifested by evidence of a purified, cleansed heart before God. It's people can see it. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. This is manifested externally, as we saw last time, in three of the four possible realms, God and others, you and others, others and others. It's, you can see it, but it's still an internal attitude that's brought out externally. Here's the warning, and here's why perhaps Jesus saved, blessed are those who are persecuted for last. He saved it for last because it's purely external. It's all external. Oh, you might be able to put on an air of being poor in spirit. You might even talk a good talk about how you've mourned for your sin. You've heard enough Christians talk about mourning sin that you've learned the words, you've learned the vocabulary. You might even come off to others as lowly and and humble. You might do good things which appear righteous. You might even show mercy just because you're a human being made in the image of God. You might even act like someone with a pure heart. You might even make efforts at being a peacemaker. 
Now listen, when it comes time to suffer for Christ, it will expose everyone for who they truly are. You might fake all of the first ones. You will not fake this one. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 that persecution brings joy to true believers because it confirms their salvation. You might be lying to yourself that, yeah, I'm poor in spirit. I'm mourning my own sin. I'm, I'm pretty lowly. But persecution will be the true test. Peter himself is perhaps most famous for denying Christ three times. But Peter was truly saved and Jesus restored him, but he did so in a fashion that humbled and hurt and, and cut Peter. John 21 records, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Three denials, three rebukes. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now he said this, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, the one who was afraid and scared to even say he was a follower of Christ, repented and he became the man who would be publicly crucified for the sake of Christ in front of tens of thousands of people. So you might ask, well, how do I prepare? How do I prepare? Well, Jesus already said how. In verse 12, rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But the Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So how do you prepare? You ready for this? You prepare by being way more concerned about the age that is to come than the one that we're in. What a glorious little phrase here. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That you will compare notes with the prophets who were killed. Isaiah tradition says that King Manasseh had him sawn in two alive. When you get to heaven and say, man, I had those water constrictors in my shower. I suffered for the faith. But you'll see them all. How do you prepare? Look to the age that's to come. And don't worry about it. And yeah, if you have to, if you have to resist respectfully, then do so. Who cares? What's the worst that can happen? I don't have time to give lots of stories about this. I've, I've read a lot about persecution. And from the early centuries of the church all the way through modern times, there's an interesting common theme. That genuine believers who honestly in their heart believe they are about to die, a gun put to their head, 
a sword put to their throat. And then suddenly they're given a reprieve. Generally speaking, their response is one of abject disappointment. Because in that moment, what happens in this, this life became utterly meaningless to them. And they were literally ready to go to heaven in a moment. So how do you prepare? Look more to the coming age. Don't worry about this one. That's how we prepare. And in the meantime, we proclaim the gospel, come what may. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we, in 2020, in some ways we failed you. In some ways, Lord, we have regrets and things we would have done differently. But we praise you that you are a, a patient and sanctifying God and Through that time, you have sanctified our church body. You have given us a determination we never had before. We have taken a stand and we will continue to do so, but we do so by the strength that you provide. Every one of us here, whether we're really cognizant of it or not, we're we're being oppressed and persecuted, whether it's in little ways or direct ways. But I pray that you would give every believer here the courage to look more to the life that is to come than to this one and to count down the glorious days until Christ's return, until He is King on this earth, until He fires every government and He places the government upon His shoulders. What a glorious day that will be that while we seem to be taking losses left and right, in the end, Christ wins and we along with Him. I pray for any in our midst who are truly questioning whether or not they would stand for Christ Give them courage. Give them the honesty to question their own salvation so that they might look to heaven instead of look to their own hearts. And I pray, Lord, if you would be so gracious, I pray that this little local body that meets on White Lane, that we would be faithful until Christ comes. May we receive the commendation that we truly were overcomers. Give us the courage of our convictions to stand for the glorious gospel, we pray, for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.